Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 26, 2016, and my guest is Kathy O'Neill. She's a data scientist trained as a mathematician with a stint on Wall Street earlier in her career. She blogs at MathBabe, and she is back on EconTalk to discuss her book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. Kathy, welcome back to EconTalk. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. One of the great titles of all time, Weapons of Math Destruction. What, <laughs> what are they? Um, they're, they're algorithms that I think are problematic. That, and I can tell you, I can define them for you. Um, they have three properties. The first is that they're widespread, which is to say they, they're, they're being deployed on many, many people um, to make very important decisions about those people's lives. So it could be how, how long they go to jail, um, whether they get a job or not, whether they, um, you know, whether they get a loan, things, uh, things that matter to people. So that's the first characteristic. The second is that they're secret in some sense. They're either um, there's a secret formula that the people who get scored by these uh, algorithms, usually a scoring system, it's either a secret formula that they don't really understand, or it's sometimes even a secret algorithm that they don't even know they're being scored by. And then finally, um, they're destructive in some way. They have um, they have a destructive um, effect on the people who get badly scored, or they sometimes even create uh, feedback loops, pernicious feedback loops that are overall destructive to society as a whole. Let's talk about those feedback loops because you give some examples in the book of where uh, I would call it a misunderstanding of a false correlation uh, or a, not a false correlation, a correlation that's not causative uh, is misinterpreted and then it feeds back on itself. So can you give us an example of that? Sure. I mean, there's uh, I, pretty much every chapter in my book has an example of one of these um, problematic algorithms. Um, but I guess one of the ones that I worry about the most, um, if we want to jump in, is uh, are the, the sort of is a family of models actually called recidivism risk scores that judges all across that's, the country. That's recidivism, right? Recidivism the, risk. Yeah. The risk of getting back on the bad side of the law and ending up in jail, for example. Right. So they're, they're basically, they're scored for people who are entering jail or prison and um, 97% of people eventually leave. So the, the question is, how likely is this person to return? And so these algorithms measure the likelihood um, for a given criminal defendant to return. Um, and they're given like basically, they're categorized either as low risk, medium risk, or high risk. And that score is given to the judge in sentencing um, or sometimes in paroling or even in setting bail, but I'll focus on the sentencing. So it might not be obvious and it's actually not obvious. We could talk about it, but if you're a higher risk of recidivism, um, then the judge tends to sentence you for longer. Um, And so we can get into what I think is problematic about the scoring systems themselves, but let me just talk, just discuss the feedback loop. The feedback loop here, which I consider extremely pernicious, 
is that when, when you're put in jail for longer, then by the time you get out of jail, you typically have fewer resources and fewer job prospects. And you're more of an outsider. You're more isolated from your community. You have fewer community ties and you end up back in jail. So it's a kind of, it, it creates its own reality by being labeled high risk. You become high risk, if it makes sense. Yeah. So that's a possible, that's a theory, right? The idea that, that uh, prison is not much of a rehabilitation experience. And if in fact, this could be the opposite, right? It could be an opportunity for you to spend more time with people who, instead of uh, making you uh, a more productive person in legal ways, make you a more productive person in illegal ways when you do get out. Do we know anything about whether that's true? It's uh, a yeah, hard question to answer. Been, yeah, there certainly have been studies uh, to this effect. And by the way, I'm not claiming that this is inherently true. I mean, there, it's th- theoretically possible for you know prisons to be wonderful places where people have resources and they learn they learn, you know, they get go to college and they, they end up, you know, because they spent a full four years there instead of three, they end up with a college degree. Um, and it, it, it actually improves their life after prison. But it just, the, the studies that we know about don't point to that. Okay, so carry on. But that's a, that's a fact of, that's an issue of how, whether prison should, sentences should be structured the way they are and whether prison should be, uh, what the experiences should be like of being in prison uh, some would argue it could be a deterrent effect. Maybe it's not in, in, in practice. But how does the data part of this interact with that, uh, the riskiness and the length of the sentence to have a, a feedback loop that's pernicious? Right. So the, the, the scores themselves are calculated um, in problematic ways. Um, so the first thing to understand about these scoring systems is that they basically, there's two types of data that go into the, the recidivism risk scores. The first is interactions with the police. Um, and the second is kind of questionnaires that most of these scoring systems have. Um, and then they use all this information, the, like the kind of police record with the answers to the questions. And they have a logistic model that they train to figure out um, the risk of coming back to jail. A um, and I don't. A logistic model ahead. is just a technical style of, of an attempt to isolate the impact of the individual variables in this kind of one zero setting, come back or not come back. Right. Well, it's, it's actually a probability, but then yeah, you have a correct. threshold. And yeah. if it's above, if it's above like 65% or something, you'll say it's likely to come back. I don't know the exact thresholds they set, nor do I actually have a problem with using a logistic regression. Um, I don't even have a problem with calculating this probability. What I have a problem with is sort of interpreting the score itself. So to be clear, um, if we have to take a step back and understand how data in the justice system works and what kind of data we're talking about here. And so, you know, everybody who's been alive for the last few years has seen, has looked around and seen all these, you know, Black Lives Matter movement issues. Um, a lot of a lot, the Ferguson report, the recent Baltimore report, report and the Chicago Police Department Commission report all point to um, practices, police practices, which at the very least we can all agree upon are uneven. So there's much more scrutiny of poor and minority neighborhoods. There's just many, many more police interactions in those communities, um, which leads to a, a actually biased data set coming out of that practice. So I already have a problem with that kind of data going into these recidivism risk scores. 
if, and I, I just want to, before you object, I want to make the point that if we were only can take, taking into consideration violent crimes, I would have less of a problem. But we're not. We're taking into consideration a lot of things that we consider broken windows policing type interactions with the police. Like, Explain what that is. That's, that's stuff like nuisance crimes, like having a joint in your pocket, um, peeing on the sidewalk, th- things that are associated with poverty, more, more or less. Um, and things for which poor people are much more likely to get in trouble with the police than richer people or whiter people. So that's one of the problems is that the data coming in from the police interactions is biased. The other thing is that often the questions that are asked in the corresponding questionnaire are, are actually proxies for race and class as well. So there's a very widespread version of this recidivism risk score called the LSIR. One of the questions in the LSIR is, um, you know, did you come from a high crime neighborhood? So it's a very direct um, proxy. The answer to that question is a very direct proxy for class. There's another question, which is, um, did your, do family members in your family have, have they historically had interactions with the police? This is, you know, obviously, again, it goes back to like, if you're a poor black person, then the chances of, of you saying yes to that are much higher. Um, I would also point out that that's a question that would be considered probably unconstitutional if we were asked in an open court. If a, if a lawyer said, oh, this person's father was in jail, um, judge, so please sentence this person for longer, that would, be, that would, not, that would not fly. But because it's embedded in this scoring system, it somehow gets through. And the reason it gets through is because it's mathematical. And people, people think that because it's algorithmic and because it's mathematical and somehow Science. scientific, mm-hmm. yes, um, that they think it's objective and fair by construction. And so the, the biggest point of my book is to push back against that idea. And that's where you and I have tremendous common ground, right? So in, in many ways, we'll turn to some other examples in a minute, but in many ways, uh, a lot of the examples that you give are just, to me, really bad social science run amok, uh, which becomes more possible when there's more data, which is what the world we're increasingly living in. And this is... Yeah, I, I, would, I, would, I would make sure that right up front that I'm not against using data. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm <laughs> not it's an good to say. I know, person. I know you're not, but it's good to say it. I'm a data scientist, and I, I, I promote good uses of data. What I'm seeing more and more, and the reason I wrote the book, is very unthoughtful uses of data being used in very high-impact situations um, unfairly. And so we might agree completely. I don't know if we have disagreement, Russ, but I'm sure you'll find it if we do. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll dig up some of them. But, but it, you know, it's an interesting example uh, you are a data scientist. Uh, I'm an economist. And of course, we're in favor of using data and evidence and facts, but using them well and using them wisely. It's an interesting challenge uh, how to react to that if it, it, if it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. Um, so to come to an, uh, an area that you write about as well in the book, which is uh, financial issues, uh, I have friends who argue, well, of course, we have to use technical, mathematical measures of risk because that's the best we can do. And that's certainly true. That is the best we can do in most cases uh, sometimes. Uh, But what if by putting the risk into this mathematical formulation, you become 
insensitive to it. You start to think you have it under control. That psychologically, even though you know it's a flawed measure and you know and you could list all the assumptions that went into it that you know are not accurate about, say, the distribution of the error function or the likelihood of a black swan, even though you're totally aware of that after day after day of looking at the data and your model and saying, oh, everything's fine today, you get lulled into a false sense of security, in which case maybe this is a weapon of mass destruction. And uh, it's very difficult for technically trained, rational, left-brained people to say, yeah, I should, probably should, shouldn't overuse that because I'm prone to, be, to use it badly. Yeah, you bring up a really important point, and I don't have a simple answer to it. But the truth is, it's really difficult even for trained professionals to understand in uncertainty um, on a daily basis. Um, with a lot of these things, the uncertainty is extreme. It's not, it's not the same thing as, say, the value-at-risk measure, which can be deceiving even for people who kind of understand its failings, um, if, if that's an example you had that's in what, mind. That is what I had in mind. I mean, I think, let's just go there. Value at risk. I, I was a researcher at risk, um, risk Metrics, which kind of developed and, and, and marketed and sold for value at risk. It was, it was clearly flawed. Of course, it was easy for me to say that because I got there in 2009. Um, but <laughs> I feel like if, if somebody had been in charge of being worried about value at risk being misinterpreted, they wouldn't have had to go too far to find um, the way people were, and I, I, I'll use shorthand here, like the way people were stuffing risk into the tail um, in order to game the 95 risk, 95 var risk measure. And I don't want to get too uh, wonky here, but the point being that we had a sort of uh, industry standard of worrying about 95 var, um, sometimes 99. What that meant was that we never looked further afield than that kind of risk. Right. That's it's a perfect example. I assume by 95 R99, you mean a 1 in 20 and a 1 in 100 chance. 1 in 20, exactly. The right. worst, so, worst return in 20 days. So so when you have a 99 and it doesn't, that's your standard, that's your cutoff and it never gets close to it. After a while, you start to think everything's great. And of course, right. that's not true. Uh, let's go back to the prison example. You know, you're a consulting firm. You, I assume this is a privately designed uh, for money, for profit measure that uh, some Department of Justice grant has funded or is paying for. And who wants to say that, oh, who wants to step forward in the middle of that and say, you know, I'm not sure you should really use this because it's got all these proxies that might not be accurate for what you're really trying to measure. So um, I would just use it kind of as a crude rule of thumb, but I wouldn't rely on it. That's not really a very good career move. It's not a very good move for a person at the Department of Justice, let alone the consulting firm. So isn't that uh, part of the problem here is the temptation to soft pedal the problems in these kind of models when you're uh, being paid on either end as the buyer or seller? I mean, great point. And I, I would I would even uh, emphasize that in, this, in the case of the justice system, what we're dealing with currently is a very, very problematic situation where judges – are probably less reliable than these terrible models. <laughs> so in other words, um, I wouldn't say, hey, let's go to the old days when we just relied on judges who are often more racist than the models I'm worried about. Um, what I am worried about, um, and, and yes, so, so that's one thing. The next thing is, yes, nobody wants to say, I built a model, but it's not very good, right? right. <laughs> but I, 
no one wants to say that. But I it's mean, still a bargain. Says, don't don't you still you you got a good deal. Trust me, it's great for what it is. Especially the context where they they could they could probably honestly say, "I built a model and it's better than what you have." Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, yeah, and there's another thing going on. By the way, I interviewed somebody like you know on background who is a person who models who builds recidivism risk models, and I asked him. Um, what the rules were around his models. And, and in particular, I said, well, would you use race directly as an attribute in this, in this logistic regression? And guess. he said, oh, no, no, I would never use race because that's a problem. That, that, that would be, you know, that would cause racial disparities in the results and the scoring. And I said, well, would you ever use zip code? And he said, yeah, maybe. You know, I'm like, well, that's a proxy for race. I mean, yeah. it's in, a, in a segregated country like ours, What's really the difference? And, you know, he said, yeah, no, you're right, but it's so much more accurate when you do that. Yeah. Um, you know, it is more accurate, but, but what, is, what does that mean? When you think about it, what that means is, well, police really do profile people. So, yes, it is really more accurate. Um, it's really, in other words, this doesn't simply, like, we, we want mathematical algorithms and scoring systems to simplify our lives, and some of them do. Like, I'll tell you one of my favorite scoring system. It's, if you, if you've visited New York city, it's the one, the restaurant grades, you know, there's a big sign, a big piece of paper in every restaurant window saying, you know, what their score was last time they got the sanitation department come and came and checked out their kitchen. And you know, not to go to a restaurant that doesn't have an A grade, right? Why does that work so well? Because it simplifies a relatively thorny and opaque question, which is, is this a hygienic restaurant? Um, and we don't know if it's a perfect system, but it does really have this magic bullet feel to it, which is, that's all I need to know. Thank yeah. you. Well, we, know it's, you know. we know it's not a perfect system because on the night you ate there, maybe the people didn't wash their hands that day and it was three weeks after the inspector and everybody's falling back into bad behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, you, you raise an important issue throughout your book, which is these kind of simple uh, indices like what's the probability of recidivism, which is a big, complicated thing, obviously, that's very person-dependent, but we're going to simplify it with eight as a function of eight observed eight variables, or the same thing is true with uh, the, high, the uh, grade from the Department of Health. The problem with a lot of these is, of course, is that they can be gamed by the people to achieve a high score that doesn't represent high quality. So it can be, and actually, um, there was an interesting blog post about the the, the prevalence of 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 restaurant scores. So they they start out as numbers, I guess, and then get turned into grades um, that are just above the cutoff. <laughs> you know, so there is clearly something slightly unstatistical about that. Slightly alarming. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, you know, and we we also don't really know what we need in a clean restaurant. Um, but, but it is, you know, crudely put like a, a good way for us as consumers. There's some information go, there. That's what yeah, I would say. There's some information there. Um, the problem with recidivism risk scores is that what we've done is we've, we've basically given the power to a class of scientists, data scientists who focus on accuracy um, only um, and, and I, when I talked to the, again, when I talked to the person I interviewed, I said, you know, is accuracy what we should, the only thing we care about is accuracy. Like I would care more about causality, right? And you yeah. mentioned the word causal, like is 
this, is this person, it's not, the question should not be, is this person poor? And do they, you know, are they, um, are they poor minority people? The question should be, is this person going to commit another crime that we can prevent? (laughs) You know, and, and like, they can't, in other words, they can't do anything about having grown up in a poor neighborhood. So to, to be, to, for that fact to be used against them doesn't seem right. So I want to I want to dig into this a little deeper because uh, if things go as planned, this episode will air uh, shortly after a conversation with Susan Athey, who's a machine learning econometrician, who makes a distinction in that interview between in our interview between prediction and causation, and that's what you're talking about. I think and I just want to clarify this. I think we should go a little deeper when you say accurate. It very well may be the case that people from this particular zip code or people with these characteristics uh, have a higher chance of committing a crime when they come back out of jail uh, and therefore ending back up back in jail. And that would be the, quote, prediction part. It, could, it fits the data well. These characteristics, quote, predict. They may not predict for this person very well, but they do predict – these classes of, of people, these groups, according to the variables that you've actually measured. And that is not necessarily what we care about in a justice system, because I think your argument, correct me if I'm wrong, your argument is, is that if we observe in these neighborhoods a lot more police presence, we may actually see more types of police interaction and even arrests and, and, and sometimes crimes of smaller versus larger amounts that'll confirm the model in the in the sense that it's quote predictive but it's not really describing the fact that these people are more likely to necessarily be bad people but they're just more likely to get swept up in a police problem is that is that kind of yeah, what you're that's a really at? that's a really good that's a really good description i mean let me just reframe that a little bit which is i would look at the system as a whole like and it's not just police it's also you know the way our jobs work for poor people or don't work, you know, the way our economy offers opportunities to ex-felons or doesn't. Um, But I guess the simplest way to put it is that when you give someone a score this way and then you hold them accountable in a certain sense, so by which I mean judges actually sentence people to longer if they have higher scores, in a very direct sense, you are punishing them for a bad score. And so you're laying the blame on them. You're pointing a finger at them. You're saying, you have a bad score. I'm holding you responsible for that. And the question is, of course, why do you have a bad score? Is that because of what you've done? And who you or are. Or is it because of the police system you live in? Is it because of the economic opportunities you're given or not given because of how, who you are, how you were born, how you were raised? And the point is that that's a very hard question, which I'm not equipped to answer by myself, but I am equipped to say that as a data scientist, it should not be my job to decide this. Yeah, I, I, I just want to clarify what I said before because I think it might be somewhat confusing. I, if I fit the data on what's the probability of somebody coming back into prison, I may have variables in there that correlate with that probability, but they're not causal. It just happens to be the case that people from these neighborhoods, because of a police presence, at certain times or different allocations of resources or whatever it is, school quality, it may turn out to be true. That doesn't imply that this person in particular, when they go back into that neighborhood, will have that experience because there could be a correlation that is not causal. And I think that's the distinction 
that uh, machine learning is enable, unable to make, even though it, quote, fit the data really well, it was really good for predicting what had happened in the past. It may not be very good for predicting what happens in the future because those correlations may not be sustained. And we hope they aren't in that situation. Let me give you another example. When I, you said it very well. Um, it's a thought experiment that your listeners might enjoy. I, um, I'm imagining that there's a tech company, you know, that the, and they, they want to hire engineers. This happens a lot, actually. And they decide to, um, they, they're having trouble finding good engineers. So they want to they use a machine learning algorithm to help them sort through resumes. And um, what, of course, they have their own history of hiring people, and those people either succeeded or didn't succeed in their company. But they have to define success for this model to sort through the historical data and look for people that look like people who have succeeded. That's basically what, when you want to build a model, you have to define your data set. You have to say what success looks like. You have to feed the algorithm um, you should choose an algorithm, but like once you've chosen the algorithm, you're telling it, look for this, look for patterns of people that look like this success story. Now imagine that, um, so imagine they've decide, defined success as somebody who's been there for three years and has been pr- promoted at least twice. Now imagine that they, they run this machine algorithm. It gets trained on their historical data of, of their historical hiring practices and they set it on this new, the new data set, which is new applications for engineering jobs. And they find that like no women get through the filter, right. that the algorithm literally rejects all the women applicants. You know, what would that mean? Well, it obviously it, means so, women are good at being engineers. <laughs> right. I mean, I set it up in extreme case, probably not, not straight, happening. Playing straight person to your, um, right, yeah. right. Thank you. Straight man. Um, I set it up to be extreme, but the point being like the, the algorithm would not say, hey, you guys should check to make sure your culture is, is welcoming to women, right? Or It, or would, it would instead just say like women do not succeed at this company, like throw them out. Or it could be that the applicants, there aren't very, very, very many women in the data set because you have a poor history in the past and there's a lot of noise in the data. So women are just not match to those characteristics that you found. But certainly the culture example would be more dramatic, right? If you have a sexist culture, women are going to look like they can't get those promotions. And as a result, you're going to be encouraged not to hire them in the future by the machine learning. And then you'll see how smart you are. You'll think you're really smart. Right. I mean, if you don't like that example, think about- no, I like, like that Fox, example. Well, I'm just going to say, though, <laughs> think, about Fox, think about Fox News. And women anchors. You know, I mean, it's not that they don't have any women. It's that the women that they have are pushed out, right? I'm just, I'm not saying that this is actually happening um, in in a given engineering firm. I'm just making the point that a machine learning algorithm is dumb. They don't understand the why. They only understand the what happened. They just, I think that's important to emphasize. It's, it's, there are patterns. Uh, Sometimes patterns are very dramatic. But it doesn't mean they'll be sustained in the future or that they should be sustained, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, a friend of mine worked at a company, and he said uh, he noticed that everyone there, he was an intern. He said he noticed that everyone there who had a permanent job was only had only gone to three different universities. I don't think that was a coincidence. I think that was their sorting mechanism to start with for their resumes. And it's not a bad place to start. Obviously, they were good universities. I'm not going to name them, but I don't remember them, actually. But they were good universities, but... That's not necessary. That's one w- way to reduce the cost of sifting through a lot of resumes. It's a very, it's a very crude and 
perhaps not not a terrible way to save time and cost. But as you get to these more sophisticated methods, as you point out, uh, you get these um, this opportunity to make false conclusions, right? That's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, it, it's kind of obvious once you say it, but these these algorithms, you know, as as sophisticated as they are, and they sometimes are, you know, the deep learning neural network algorithms are, I mean, I wouldn't call it sophisticated, but they're certainly unintelligible. Um, they don't, <laughs> they don't somehow, <laughs> they don't make, they don't make moral decisions, right? They, they literally only pick up patterns that already exist. So it would be great. And the big, the sort of the big data promise is like you throw data against a wall and truth falls out. You know, the big data promise is that somehow the truth is embedded in historical practices, but that's only true if our historical practices are perfect. So as soon as, as soon as we have a firm that has uh, an engineering firm that has like really mastered what it means to, to find good engineers, as soon as we have that, then we should make a machine learning algorithm to mimic that. Um, But I don't think we have that yet. And I think the, the other point you make, which I think is important, I'm not sure I agree with it in all the cases you give, but there's not always a mechanism for making the model better. So in the case of the engineers, you'd consistently hire men. You would you slowly would weed out the women in that case, or you wouldn't hire them to start with. And at the, you'd have a model that you'd be foolishly thinking worked pretty well, but in fact, you had made a mistake. Now, I would argue that firms that do that have an incentive to at least think about whether they're making a mistake, whether their big data models are, are serving them well. And I think we're in early days. So one argument would be against your pessimism about these models is, well, you know, we're just starting. Sure, they make some mistakes now, but we're going to get better. And it's just, in fact, the evangelists will say, it's going to get better and better. Of course, it's imperfect. What, what are your thoughts on that uh, optimism I mean, uh, pessimism? I'm actually one of those people. I know we're going to get better. What I'm trying to point out is that we can't assume we're already good. You know, what, what I'm objecting to are high stakes decisions being made when there's no actual check or monitor on the fairness or um, the actual meaningfulness of the actual scores themselves. And I, I say meaningfulness because I'm thinking about the teacher value added model, which just I don't ask think, you about that. Yeah, I, I don't think the problem there is discrimination per se. Like actually a lot of the teachers are women. Like it's, it's a, you know, very diverse field. There might be some discrimination issues around it, but the biggest problem is that it's not very meaningful. We have these scores um, that are typically between zero and a hundred. And some work has been done to just see how consistent the scores are. And it's abysmal. Well, let's back up. Let's back up and talk about, put the, the, those, uh, the uses and the value added model in context, because Listeners won't know what it is. This is an attempt to evaluate teacher quality and use that evaluation to either typically to hire, to fire uh, the worst teachers under various mandates, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it goes back, you know, a couple decades and a, a few presidencies. Um, the idea is like fix education by getting rid of the bad teachers. And we have this myth of... Um, these terrible teachers that are ruining education. And I'm not saying there aren't. I would call that a total myth. I think there are some lousy teachers. There there absolutely are bad teachers and there are bad schools. Um, But I'm just claiming, and I'll, I'll repeat myself, that, you know, just, you know, 
there might be a problem, but you, but if you have a, a solution that doesn't actually solve the problem, then you're you're getting nowhere. Um, and I think the value added model for teachers is an example of that. So what they've done, the first generation of teacher assessment tools was pretty crude and obviously flawed, and that was to sort of just count the number of students in a, of a given teacher's class who like were proficient in their subject by the end of the year. And the reason that was super crude is that essentially um, performance on standardized tests is highly correlated to poverty across the nation and across the world, in fact. And when you just counted the number of students in a, in a given class that attained proficiency and then punished the teachers who had very few of those students, then you were punishing basically teachers of poor students. And it was pretty clear that that wasn't good enough. Like that wasn't, it wasn't, um, didn't, it, it, it wasn't discerning enough as a way of finding bad teachers. Or another way of thinking about it is these kids weren't proficient in third grade. Why would they be suddenly be proficient in fourth grade? Yeah, you're not controlling for the initial quality of the students that the teachers had to deal with. So that's not, that's clearly exactly. wrong. <laughs> right. That's clearly wrong. So they, they, they wanted to do exactly what you just said. They wanted to control for the students themselves. So what they've developed is this, what I call a derivative model. So it depends on another model, which is in the background, which estimates what a student, a given student should get as, at the end of their fourth grade year, let's say. And it's based on what they got at the end of third grade, reasonably enough, as well as other, a few other attributes, including like what school district they're in, like whether they qualify for school lunches, which is a proxy for poverty, various things. So, so now just imagine everybody in your class, your teacher, a fourth grade teacher, everybody in your class has an expected score at the end of the year. What is your score ending up? What's your value added score? It's going to be essentially the difference between the collection of differences because you have a bunch of students, the differences between what your students actually get versus what they were expected to get. So if your students... Which is a good idea on, on paper, right? It's a perfect, it is. That's exactly what you want to try idea. to measure. Yeah, right. So if, you, if Tommy was expected to get an 80, but Tommy got an 88, then that's plus eight points. That's good for you. If Sarah got a 60 when she was supposed to get a 65, that's not good for you. So you, you kind of, the, again, the idea is, and this is kind of reminiscent of what we were talking about with the recidivism risk scores, you are held accountable for all these differences, between what your students were supposed to get versus what they actually got. And I'm simplifying it because there's all sorts of complicated, sophisticated mathematics going on as well. But let's put that aside. Yeah, this is more or less the idea. The problem, statistically speaking with this, with this is that the original model is just not very accurate. Yeah, a lot of noise. And when, you, when you're dealing with the difference between actual versus expected, that's called something. It's called the error term. In a, in a bad model. So you're, as a teacher, you're being held re accountable essentially for the average error term of a bad model, which is also, by the way, it's also called noise yeah. <laughs> for a reason. Yep. And it's just simply a bad scoring system. It's not consistent enough. I interviewed someone named Tim, Tim Clifford, who's a middle school English teacher in the New York City Public Schools. He's been teaching for 26 years. He has a bunch of awards, et cetera. He got a six out of 100 it's a the low first time score. he got a value added model. Low score. Terrible score. He got a 96 the next year. 
he must have gotten so much smarter in the meantime. <laughs> he, he took some classes on how to teach well. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, and I, I, I just, I characterize weapons of mass destruction by saying they're widespread. So this, this is all over the country. Most states now use some kind of version of this, um, that it's secret. So this is what really gets to me about this. I, um, I, there's actually been a, quite a bit of, of uproar around these, these teacher assessment scores. And the New York Post actually um, filed a Freedom of Information Act request and got the names and the scores of all the teachers in New York City. The first year, I believe it was the first year it came out. And they published them. It was kind of like a public shaming of the teachers. Um, I tried to FOIA, I tried to get the Freedom of, I, I filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the source code for that same scoring system under the assumption that if you can get the scores, probably I can get the public access. I can get the system, the scoring system itself. I was denied the public, the, um, the, the actual code. And moreover, I found that under the licensing agreement that this, um, this company, this big data company had written with the city, New York city, nobody in the department of education could see the source code either. So literally nobody actually understood how these scores were being built. So a final word is that I kind of gave up and I didn't know what to do after that. But this really smart guy who's actually a high school teacher at Stuyvesant High School, a math teacher, what he did was he took the, the stuff that the New York Post had publicly, you know, had, had published. He took that same data and he found some teachers that were actually listed twice um, quite a few, actually, hundreds of teachers were listed twice. They, they'd maybe taught seventh grade math and eighth grade math. So they'd gotten scores for both classes. And he just graphed them. He just looked at how consistently these teachers were scored. That's pretty and good. he found very wide, very wide discrepancies. It, if you plot it on a scatter plot, it looks almost like uniform distribution. Well, it could Whereas be. Whereas what you'd expect is like a line... Y equals X, just right down the middle. Yeah. It's nothing like that. Although it is possible, of course, that a teacher has a particularly uh, annoying class or a particularly challenging class. Some classes will get more time and effort and energy from a teacher. They don't spread their time equally, and they probably don't do as the same job in each class. But you'd expect some correlation. So the fact that it's virtually zero would be disturbing. It's uh, not zero. It's actually, to be clear, it's 24%. And, but that's like for a teacher with themselves. Yeah, that's not, right? not, not so, so just, good. I, and I'm not saying there's no information in that at all. What I'm saying is it's not very good information. It's really not. And at the same time, it's being used for high stakes questions. Uh, you know, so for tenure decisions, um, I, I interviewed a woman in, uh, named Sarah Wasaki, who was a D, Washington, D.C. area teacher. She got fired because she had a bad uh, growth score, value added model score. She actually got fired over this. She had plenty of reason to believe that her score was actually caused by a previous teacher cheating on cheating on the, their students' tests because there was a bonus involved. It was complicated, but the point being, like these these scores are just simply not accurate enough to fire people to have large decisions based on them. Yeah. So. I, the, the Wysocki example is tremendous because, I mean, it's just a phenomenal example of how uh, if the coming incoming classes scores are artificially inflated the year before by cheating or by some teachers really good at teaching to the test and you're not as good at teaching the test, but you're a great teacher, you can get a lower score uh, and, and be seemingly worthy of being fired. I think it's important to add 
that, you know, it's a horrific system. It's a horrific system, the public school system. And, you know, we could take turns. And I found myself taking terms as I, turns as I read your book, feeling bad for the teachers or the students. So it's true. That's very unfair to a teacher. And it's a crude and I think a really lousy way and it, it, to evaluate teachers. And I'd also add that it's, it, it, it's masquerading as objective when it's not. But the also truth is, is that these students get horrible teachers who can't be fired. And so you have to have, don't have to, but the current system, because it's so entrenched, there's no way to get rid of bad teachers. And I, I think that's the tragedy to me. I come from a different ideological place than you do. But I think, you know, I don't know anything about this value-added model. It sounds awful to me for lots of reasons. I think it's incredibly difficult to predict expected scores. But but the idea that that somehow uh, there's a good alternative. There isn't a good alternative in the current system, it seems to me. Yeah, I'm, I mean, listen, I, I'm i glad I convinced you of my main point, which was that this is not a solution. Um, and we could we could talk about political solutions to bad teachers, which I agree are a problem. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to know my personal opinion, like let's pay them much better and remove tenure and get rid of bad ones in a thoughtful way. Um, I also think that data has a place in education, but I think that education, like the way data and algorithms and models should work has to be intrinsically a feedback loop between the teachers and the test scores, right? And, you know, the, the, the teachers have to not just get a score, but like feedback about what they should do better. What, you know, hey, we did this, this is an interesting test, the test, um, actually measured the student's understanding of the various, these various dimensions. And we see that, you know, your students were lacking in this dimension and this is how you teach that. You know, in other words, feedback that the teachers can, that good teachers can actually reliably use to improve their teaching, which is not what we have here. No, I agree with that. The problem is, is that we're stuck because of the nature of the public school system, I think. We're stuck with, with, objective, uh, un-mess-aroundable un with things like test scores. Test scores are a terrible way to measure teacher quality on so many dimensions. And my, my wife's uh, head of a math department in a high school. And if I told her, okay, now what you want you to do is evaluate your teachers based on how their kids do on test scores, she would be so offended. She spends hours in the classrooms of her teachers. She wants people to be in her classroom when she teaches. And what makes a good teacher is a subtle, and there, there are a lot of dimensions to it. And it's certainly not only how somebody does on a test score, even if it's a huge improvement, which is a good thing. I'm not denying, I don't think test scores are irrelevant, but I think it's bizarro that we assess teacher quality based on a score. And we're, the reason we do that is because it can defend, it'd be defended. It's sort of, to me, a sort of meta version of, of what's wrong with, with the more complicated systems that you're, that you're talking about. It's just, it's just not the way anybody would do it if they had to design it from scratch. I could not agree more. And I think that the philosophical question that is raised by your venting just now, which I completely agree with, is when do we see these magic bullet algorithms be, be used? You know, when do people say, I'm going to solve this very thorny, like, class-related, you know, 
complicated societal-wide problem with this stupid algorithmic scoring system, which doesn't answer the original question and leads to all these unintended consequences. And I think <laughs> the answer is, if the more complicated and societal and you know taboo, really, a tough topic is, the more likely you are to come up with, to see something emerge along these lines. Yeah, but but you give a lot of examples from the private sector that are not as societal, that are different. And I, I want to turn to a couple of those because they're very interesting to me. Um, and I want to I, I want to defend I, I, my only criticism, serious criticism of your book is that you don't spend much time talking about any of the benefits. So it's you only, you emphasize the costs, which perhaps is the right way to start, at least to get people's attention. But one example you used, which you know that came to mind, was you talked about U.S. News and World Report and their attempt to measure university quality, which is absurd. Obviously, it can't be done, um, and they end up doing it. They end up, you know, just mindless. claiming to do it. Let's yeah, claiming to do it, and they rank universities, they rank MBA programs, they rank graduate schools, and it's it's we all understand. That it's to sell magazines, it is to start arguments, and it's very effective at both those things. But it also changes lives in all kinds of unexpected and not so attractive ways. And it creates what you call an arms race among universities trying to pad their scores because they know it goes into the index. Having said that, it it also forced a lot of schools that had great reputations to actually serve their students better than they had before, in my opinion. So do, do you want to expand on the bad part and do you want to accept my good part or do you disagree with that? Maybe I, I mean, you know, if you have good evidence that, that the U S news report, moral report arms race among college administrators has actually had positive effects on student learning. Like I haven't seen that. Well, I wouldn't suggest it has much for student learning, but I think it has had what it did in places like uh, an MBA programs, which is where I saw it up way too up close and personal um, as a former uh, faculty member in a business school that was really desperate to get in the top 20 and stay there. Um, there were some pernicious things that you talk about that uh, that people did things to, to make the scores look better when in fact they weren't, they weren't any better. But there was an enormous revolution among business school programs to make their uh, degrees, I think, more useful to students. And I think that was a good thing. The rest of it, at the college level, you're prob- you might be right, or you're prob- I'm sure there's a lot of truth to what you say, which is that it, a lot of all it did is change the way people gamed the ranking system and in, in lots of silly ways. And it's not what people should be spending their time thinking about, rather than they should be thinking about how to make the university better, uh, rather than trying yeah, to. Yeah, make- I mean, okay, so I'd be happy to look at at what you're saying, and and you know, I I, I don't, I'm not claiming that I. I've spent that much time on the MBA level of this stuff. I think my biggest criticism is that, you know, if you're going to make a score of of quality for colleges, especially if it's going to be aimed at parents of high school kids, and I'm one of them. My my son is entering junior year of high school, which is like critical moment to start worrying about college, right? It is abominable to me, and I'm sure to you, that you do not, that you actually create construct a model that is blind to cost as if we're a bunch of Rockefellers who can send our kids to whatever school is the best, you know, irrelevant, you know, 
ignoring cost. Of course, cost is a major factor. And the consequence of them ignoring cost back in 1983, which they had many, many years to resolve, which they have not. The consequence of that is that tuitions have risen in direct relationship to how much these colleges are fighting each other to to outrank them on this on this. Yeah, explain that because that was really interesting. I'm not sure I agree with it, but it's really interesting. So talk about that that connection. I mean, I'm not the only person making this case, but I mean, everybody knows that you know the number of administrators at these colleges has ballooned, and partly that's due to all sorts of things that they now have to. Um, regulations that they have to make sure that they're following. But a lot of that is is directly due to the just that many people in a university's job is to keep an eye on their ranking and to make sure that, you know, they're they're competitive for incoming freshmen. Which means that the sort of like the colleges at a given tier are all fighting for the best students that they can hope to get for that tier. And what that often means is you know, they want to get these student athletes, um, so they have to build these new stadiums. They want to get really nice dorms. They have dorms that have, like, water parks yeah, embedded no, in the dorms. It's, it's, it's like, forget about, I mean, I'm sure you have your story, too. I went to UC Berkeley in 1990. I mean, we, we had to find our own housing, you know? Yep. It, it was very bare bones. We got a great education. It was very, very affordable, especially for in-state. Um, we didn't get coddled. We were grownups. And I just feel like, it, of course, it's lar- part of a larger societal issue of like, when do kids actually get to be called a grownup in this, in this yeah, day and age? No, for sure. Um, but it is completely outrageous and way too expensive. It's something that I, as a parent, would never agree to. But, um, but it's being, it, this, this money is being spent and then charged to me because of the fight for the U.S. News & World Report ranking. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's a great example. I, I don't know if it's true. I think some of it's true because, uh, you know, the idea is here you, you want the highest SAT students. You want the most – you want to be selective. So you want lots of applicants and you want to reject a bunch of them because that makes you look like you're a better school because you're more selective. None of which, you know, that doesn't make you a better school, obviously. It just makes you look like a better school. Um, you know, the other and you're all and, and moreover, I would argue, like, we're just all fighting. And when I say we, I should – I mean colleges. They're just all fighting – for the same group of kids. It's not like the kids change. You know, it's just the same group of kids. We're just sorting them slightly differently because after all this ranking situation. And we're putting them in very fancy dorms. Yeah, with really nice food and athletic facilities to play in and not just maybe not always a water park, but lots of it's a it's a hotel, it's a resort like experience. Now the question is, is that because um of these rankings or is it because we're a really rich country and Rich people send their kids to these schools and they want their kids to have a pleasant experience. They don't want them to have your Berkeley experience or the experiences I had that are a little much more bare bones. Uh, because you look and at the I, high schools that these kids, that the kids come from, they also look kind of unusually fancy, which is. Well, listen, I mean, it depends on who you ask, obviously. I think the, the kids that have go to fancy high schools would, you know, enjoy their fancy colleges. I think if you talk to a bunch of millennials right now about their student debt, and ask them, would you trade in your student debt for um, fewer perks in your d- college dorm? They would trade it in a second. And, and so I, I don't, I don't, you know, I also don't think that this is all completely deliberate. It's not a, a somebody's plan. No. Um, I don't think there was anybody who, like, I don't even think the U.S. News and World Reports were like, oh, we're going to really, 
we're going to screw the lower classes and the middle class, and they're going to have huge amounts of college debt in 20 years. That wasn't, it wasn't like that. It I wanted to give an example of like what feedback loops can really do. And it's, and it's, and it's sort of natural. It happens, it arises naturally because of the trust that we put into these rankings. Yeah, just, we have actually endowed, as parents, we have endowed these rankings with power way beyond what they deserved. Yeah, I don't give them that, but I know my, a lot of my friends do because, you know, having taught at, I think, five universities, having been in the kitchen, I'm much uh, less um, concerned about the grade that the Department of Health gives. I know a little bit more maybe about what's actually going on. And therefore, you know, when someone says, I got to get my kid in this kind of school, I'm thinking it's not really worth it. But uh, it is. It's it's an interesting question. I I think it's a question of magnitude of, of these effects. I don't know how much of it is driven by the U.S. news uh, coming into existence. And I say that just because one of the things I do know the data on, if you look at the amount of government subsidies to education over the last 10 years, 15 years, it's it's rather extraordinary. And the number of students going to uh, college has increased. I think it's it's a shocking number. I think it's I think who graduate it's. It's either who go or graduate was up, I want to say 50% between 2000 and 2010. It's a huge increase over a very short period of time. Could argue maybe that's a response by the political process to the increased demand. I don't know, but there's a lot going on there. That's all I'd say. Yeah, there is a lot going on. I'm not claiming this is the only factor. I also, I think the federal aid system is a factor, like it's made things it's made it easier for people to borrow money to go to school, which pushes up the often demand. is a very good incentive for schools to raise their tuition. Pushes um, so I, I absolutely don't claim this is the only factor, but I do think that it is an important one. And I, and I get that from my research on like listening to what administrators say when they install fancy stadiums. Yeah. I, by the way, I, a separate issue, but you know, it's, it's not obvious. I know administrators like to say that fancy stadiums and good sports teams encourage uh, applications and, and improve rankings. That there's a there's a debate on that. Uh, there's and that may be an example where correlation isn't causation either. You know, you use the example the Flutie effect, where Doug Flutie threw a, a miracle pass at the end of a University of Miami game, put Boston College on the map, and their admissions went up thirty percent over two years, but there are other things going on. It's not obvious that that was just due to that. But I think administrators like to invoke that as an excuse for building fancy sports teams. Yeah. And it, again, it's not it's not the only thing going on. I do think that alumni giving is one of the factors that the U.S. News and World Reports counts as a, as a sign of quality. And I think that people, you know, who used to be on the football team are more likely to give money. But, you know, again, I don't want to quibble. Um, I just, it's an example of a very, very influential algorithm. And it's an old, it's an old example. So yeah. I just wanted to say like the algorithms have power. Um, and we're, we have a bunch of new algorithms that we are just blindly trusting and empowering. And we have to be careful. You talk a bit about uh, an issue that's come up recently on the program, which is AB testing at tech firms like Google or Facebook or Quora, where interviewed Adam uh, D'Angelo recently on that of all the experiments that they're running daily and Google's famous for that. This is a really cool thing. It's a really cool thing for data scientists. They really like, they have a, this incredible laboratory where they can change the color and change the font. And those are kind of harmless. Some of them are not so harmless though you suggest. So talk about what worries you about inside these tech firms with proprietary uh, experimentation going on. Are you talking about the, um, 
predatory advertising? Anything you want. I mean, uh, you know, the the bright side is, oh, it's great. Everybody gets what they want. They make it more customized for you. And it sounds good. And I could be, I think a lot of it is good, right? They show me books I I want to see. They show me things I want to buy rather than things I don't want to buy. On average, that's good. But that's, it's more than that. Yeah. So, I mean, I actually worked at an ad tech firm um, after leaving finance. And um, there's a story I say in the book about a venture capitalist who was considering, you know, investing in our series B round funding, funding round. Um, And he had this sort of, he talked to the whole company, which was, I think, 50 people at the time or so. And he talked about this sort of glorious future that he was imagining where he would only see offers for vacations to Aruba and jet skis. Um, and he would never again have to um, endure a University of Phoenix ad because those aren't for people like him. Yeah. And when he said that, like people laughed. And I was, and I was like, wait a second, what? You know, we hear these, these, the tech, ad tech guys are always talking about the opportunities and how tailored ads are a, a feature, um, a, almost like people should be grateful for them. Um, oh, thank you. I was thinking of buying that lamp. Right. I'm so you glad knew. you showed it to me. You knew. And in, in some sense, they're, they're right. It's a, they are often opportunities. Sometimes they're coupons. They're, they're, there may be nuisances or distractions when we're trying to get some work done. Um, but in the worst case scenario, they're actually predatory. Um, in, in that, that worst case scenario, going back to the federal aid program, is, <laughs> is for-profit colleges, which tar- specifically target people um, who are vulnerable uh, to this, this kind of really hardcore recruiting um, and, and are eligible for the financial aid that goes straight from the government to, um, to the for-profit college. Um, so it's, you know, and that's one example. Um, there's another example of payday, payday lenders. Um, and the reason I think it's so important to understand that the worst case scenario is quite predatory is that, you know, I've been in finance, and I've been in data science. In finance, when we had a weapon of mass destruction, which was the, you know, AAA ratings on mortgage-backed securities, when that model failed, it failed spectacularly, and everyone in the world noticed because the financial crisis was a financial system was at risk. But what I fear about data science algorithms that fail is that, or that create pernicious feedback loops, so like the one I just described with for-profit colleges and debt and cycles of poverty, is that they are absolutely failing the people they're targeting, but we will not see it. It's exactly what the venture capitalist visiting my company said. He doesn't want to see it. He wants to be siloed and segregated and put into a position where he's like treated like the first class citizen that he is. And he wants other people who are being preyed upon to be separated and like away from view. And that's what the thing that bothered me the most. Actually, that was the moment when I decided to write the book. Yeah, I'm not, I don't have any, um, I have any opinion on for-profit colleges. It is, I think it's a, I don't know how predatory they actually are. They don't. They don't come across very well in your book, and uh, <laughs> I don't. Which is maybe justified. Um, the question is, you know, what what is to be what is to be done about that? Should we warn people that they're bad places to? Let's let's start with the assumption, which again, I'm, I'm agnostic on. I don't know anything about it. That they don't serve their clientele well, and that that there's a scam element that people are being 
it's things are being foisted on them that are not productive. Suppose that's true. Does that mean we should warn people about it? Does it mean we should stop letting people borrow money for those uses? And does or does it mean, which is what you focus on, does it mean we should be wary of algorithms inside, say Google or Facebook or elsewhere that that's that push certain types of people towards certain type of purchases that quote aren't good for them, which is really what you're saying, I think. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, I want people to stop promoting tailored advertisement as a purely benign, if not positive force. It really is a segregating force. Um, And for those of us who have money in our pockets and are well-educated, it serves as an opportunity. Um, For other people, it doesn't. And as as far as the for-profit colleges go, I don't want to only single out for-profit colleges because the truth be told, like some of them were probably fine. Some students probably have good experiences and then some other colleges are probably not fine. Um, I think the answer to that, and if I were in charge of the world, which I'm not, would be yes, to cut off federal aid because they are essentially leeches on the federal aid system um, of loans, which I think between you and me should be completely um, changed and we should just have free, like very, very affordable state schools and maybe forget about federal aid. But that's just, that's just my opinion. Um, I agree I with half that, of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, we don't have to agree on everything. And I'm not trying to say everyone, hey, agree with me. What I'm trying to say is like, this is happening. You know, like advertising online these guys what? know a lot about you. They can target you. They know if you're poor. They know if you're a, a single mom. They know if you're desperate. They, ha- you know, they find you and they say, "I'm going to solve all your problems. Just, just sign here, and you're going to get online um, education. And you know, at the end of four years, you'll be saddled with a lot of debt, and you'll have a diploma that's often not worth more than a high school diploma." So, you know, there are going to be examples like that, but I, I guess I, I want to disagree at least get your response to this idea that it's okay for me and you to get tailored ads, but not poor people. So, you know, I, I was thinking of buying a, a watch. So I did some Google searches on watches and all of a sudden watches start showing up in my, in my searches as the, as the ads. And I bought a watch and they keep showing up <laughs> they're going to keep showing up. And that, you know, it's not, use this example for it. It's not that smart. It takes a while, or maybe they're hoping I'll buy another one, which I'm not, but um, so I'm glad I saw them, you know, some of them and I rejected some, I took, I clicked on some, maybe don't remember, but I, I like in general, the ads are tailored for me because it, otherwise it's just clutter. But why is it that a poor person, aren't there things that poor people would like to know about to buy that are good for them and that, that they would profit from having and shouldn't they be free and wouldn't it be better for them to get those products that they are desperately eager to get a good deal on rather than the jet skis? I, isn't it okay to that for them to get tailored ads too? Um, you know, if if they're looking to buy something and they don't have a lot of money, I of course want them to find a good deal. The problem is that they're worth in this situation, they're worth way more to a potential payday lender or a potential college for profit college that can get just tons of money through the through the federal aid system than they are worth to a uh, purveyor of cheap whatever, you know, the actual products that these people can afford. I, I don't know if you know the way that Google auctions work, but essentially a given a space on advertising goes to the highest bidder. So, you know, the, the different, the different um, companies that are vying for, for space in front of that person 
um, they each value that person in different ways. And right now, for poor people, if you, it's not so surprising to hear um, the, the the predatory industries value them the most because they can make they can make the most profit off of those people. Well, I don't. So why do you, I, but they don't have to be predatory. So. They don't have to be predatory. No, I'm not saying they are. Even payday lenders may not be predatory because these people that we're talking about maybe don't have a bank. They don't have access to capital. They can't – it's good for them. They want those things. Should we not let them have them? Should they be banned? I mean, I think they should. Depend. I mean, look, if it's a true payday lender. I mean, we don't – we're going to go into the weeds here. Um, but let me just let me just make the one point, which is that if you had to if you had two lenders that are vying for the space on a web page that a poor person is looking at, and one of them is predatory and charges enormous fees and makes enormous profits, and the other one is much more reasonable as a lender, the person that makes more money is going to be able to offer more money on that, in the in the auction, and they're going to they're going to win. Do you see what I mean? I do, but it doesn't have to be the person that the, the most predatory. It could be if there's competition there, between them. That there there costs. is competition between them. There is competition. But if I opened a bank today and I, I promised my, you know, I promised myself I made it my mission to make really reasonable loans, and I would make much less profit off those loans. I wouldn't have that much money to pay for tailored advertising. So I wouldn't win those Google auctions. Or those, whatever the advertising auction. But that's because the audience that you're trying to attract is evidently more expensive. So you could choose as a matter of charity, you could raise money to create an NGO that would, or a nonprofit that would outbid and and may, and offer lower rates of interest. But evidently, that's not the market rate. But you're right; we're way off in the weeds here. So I want to. Can I would enjoy going continuing, but we're. We're almost out of time, so I'd, if it's okay, I'd like to just shift gears for a final question. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. So you raise a lot of really interesting points about – we've talked about most of them, and you have lots of examples where people want to read more. The causation issue, the lack of feedback loops sometimes to improve the model, et cetera. Where does that leave us? You know, We're in a world right now where there's a tremendous amount of romance – about these models and about the data that we have access to. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of really smart people, people like you who don't have your wariness, who are just going gung-ho, full speed ahead. Um, What might slow them down? What do you recommend we think about, besides reading your book, which is always a good, that's a good recommendation, (laughs) uh, to make people a little more careful about what they're doing and and humble. Uh, What else might we do uh, besides being aware well, I have sort of three three planks to this. Um, the first one is the easiest one, which is to get more ethics and more thoughtfulness in machine learning um, and and data science education. Um, there was actually a little brouhaha about oh, in Colombia about a computer science class, machine learning class, um, being assigned to be the RoboCop. <laughs> I don't know if you heard about this, yeah. but they were assigned. Um, it was meant to be. Um, satire, but it wasn't clear enough. Um, so the idea was, you know, take the stop and frisk data, which is public data, and um, figure out like who who to go after. Um, it was done really poorly, but I thought it was actually the right thing to do. I think what we need to do is realize is to actually study real life data sets and realize that, you know, 
we can infer a lot about police practices from from looking at the raw data. And it's not always a pretty thing. It's not always something we are particularly proud of. Um, so I would actually, if I were teaching a, a machine learning class or, a, you know, for future data scientists, I would ask them to think about this very, very explicitly. That's the one thing. Um, the next thing is we have to build tools to understand how these actual algorithms work. And what, right now, what we just don't have that. It's a large gaping hole. It's kind of, we have a decision-making process without an auditing process for that decision-making process. And we need to build tools to audit algorithms. Um, and, and that's a field that it's very brand new. I'm hoping to be part of it. I just started a company to, to audit algorithms to be a consultant for that. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever have a client because a lot of these people don't want to think too hard about what's going on inside the black box. But I think that we need to do that. I think companies should do that to their own, um, to their own algorithms internally because they should be worried that they might get sued if they're doing stuff that's illegal or unfair. Um, and also, I think regulators should keep in mind that these algorithms are essentially running wild and need to be understood. And finally, I want the public to have kind of a bill of rights around scoring systems is where they, uh, very similar to what we already have with credit scores. You know, with credit scoring, we have the right to see our credit report. We have the right to contest data in our credit report that's inaccurate. Um, and there are certain rules around what, how credit scores can be built or not built. And I think we need that more generally. But the, right now, the, the, um, you know, the laws are not written for the age of big data. So we need to sort of update them. And we need the public to, to push back. I think the teach, example, teachers who are being assessed by a meaningless, almost random number generator testing a scoring system should demand to understand what their score means and how to get better. It's early days, but have you had any reaction from fellow data scientists about these arguments? Your book's just coming out now, but are you going? Do you think it's going to resonate with folks, or is it going to just uh, they just want to push it aside? Just let me do I my think job. People, yeah, I mean, so far I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. Um, you know, not everyone loves it. Um, a lot of people like like to live in the the world where what they do is magical hmm. and inherently. Correct. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm expecting people to be uncomfortable with it as well. My guest today has been Kathy O'Neill. Her book is Weapons of Math Destruction. Kathy, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.